listening to a podcast from the University of Manchester. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Season 3. We're once again asking the biggest questions in science and engineering. And to get things started, we want to know, are we entering a new space age? To help us answer this question, we'll be speaking to Dr. Kira McGrath, a lecturer in aerospace systems here at Manchester and the Institute of Engineering and Technology's Young Woman Engineer of the Year. First though, I wanted to start with a quiz for Corey. So Corey, in this episode, we're gonna be talking quite a lot about the uses and benefits of satellites. Um, now, many of these satellites have quite interesting names. Okay. So I thought it'd be quite fun for me to quiz you on which ones you think are real and which ones I've just made up. Okay, sounds good. Does that sound okay? Yes, it does. Okay, so the first one is Jason. Jason, how are you spelling this? J-A-S-O-N. Oh, so just like, like the name. <laughs> like you, like you Jason, 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 Jason. Um, what could that stand for? It's definitely been an acronym if it is a real name. Jason, maybe like you. Oh, hmm, I was going to say maybe you'll not answer this. Are all these satellites like Earth satellites? Not, not necessarily. Okay, so I'm thinking this might be like a Jupiter one. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to go true. Jason is a tr satellite name. It is a satellite yes. name. Uh, so Jason stands for Joint Altimetry. Oh. Satellite Oceanography Network. Oh. Uh, so Jason is responsible for mapping ocean floor depths and monitors rising sea levels. I want the uh, the inventor of this satellite to, to be called Jason. And he, <laughs> him to be like, yeah, we should call it Jason because like, it'll be the join. Uh, so, uh, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to do a bit more <laughs> research to find that. Sure. Yeah, I'd like to think that too. Uh, so for number two, we have... Near Shoemaker. That near, is Near Shoemaker. Okay, Near Shoemaker. Uh, like, it's not like Schumacher, it's Shoemaker. Shoemaker, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Spelt how you'd expect it to be. Like like a, like a foot. Like yeah. A what you have on your feet. Um, I don't know. I feel like Near... The Near thing is interesting because it implies there's more than one. It's like the far shoemaker, medium mm. away shoemaker. Um, but I don't, I think this is made up. I think you've made this up. Do you now? I do. You'd be incorrect. Oh, no. Because near shoemaker is from NASA and it stands for the Near Earth Asteroid Rendezvous Shoemaker. And it's named after the planetary scientist Eugene Shoemaker. No. And his, spell, his name is spelt like. Yeah. That's so shoemaker. cool. Yeah. But he wasn't a shoemaker. He was... No, he was a planetary scientist. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, and also, it was the first satellite to orbit an asteroid. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Pretty cool. Yeah. Okay. For number three, we have Neville. 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 Again. This could easily be a person called Neville, and they're trying to shoehorn my name onto the satellite. Neville. It's a bit boring of a name, that as well. No offence to any <laughs> Neville's listening. Um, so I'm going to say incorrect. It is incorrect. Oh, you. Because Neville is named after, well, I've named it after Gary Neville, oh. the Sky Satellite oh. TV football pundit and Manchester United legend. Okay, that was very clever, Joe. 
Um, so for number four, we have read L-O-W. What? No, read I've, L-O-W. No, I've said it wrong. <laughs> read L-O-U. Read L-O-U, so read Lou. Yes. Why are you spelling L-O-U? Why, why have you spelled it like that? As in, why have you said it out loud like it? I misread it. Yeah, no, but why did you want to spell the last name out? Because that's how it is. Yeah, no, but you didn't... Because that's, shoot... that's, in, that's in capital letters. Oh, okay. Okay. Read, look, read, spell. R-E-E-D. Okay. I'm going to go, this is a correct, this is a satellite. Do you? I'm afraid oh, you're no. incorrect. Look, it is, I, I, <laughs> so when we were doing the last season, I couldn't really see Joe in person. <laughs> but now we're recording person and his eyes lit up <laughs> when, With I light. Said, yeah, when I said because it's, it's Reed Lou or if you turn it around that's Lou Reed who of course sang the song Satellite of Love your cultural references are lost to me who's from the Velvet Underground uh, yep <laughs> sure. I thought you might not know that which is no. why I which is why I that's why it. you spell it out you're trying to be so clever yeah you were teasing me because you knew it, I wouldn't know who that was and it worked okay the next one is Odin Odin yep. good name uh, God the Norse God the, the chief God yep so it could be is He's it also in... a satellite uh, it should be if it's not so yes I'm going to go it is you are correct yes uh so Odin was a Swedish, French, Canadian, Finnish satellite. Um, okay. And it launched from Svobodny in Russia in 2001. Very interesting. Named after the ruler of the Norse gods. Yeah. The, as you said. Yeah, the father of the Norse gods. So uh, that doesn't stand for anything. It's just, it's just Odin named after him. No, I think it's just named after him. Oh. Yeah. Good. So yeah, that's a, that's a pretty strong name. That, yeah, that's a good name, that. Here's another strong name for number, number six. Is it Joe? <laughs> Howard 2. Howard 2. Um, yeah, why not? Yeah, Howard 2 is a satellite. I'm afraid it's not. Howard 2 is obviously named after Howard Moon from the TV comedy The Mighty Boosh. Okay, I've heard of that at least. But you've not seen it. No, well, I don't know who Howard 2 is. <laughs> Okay. Well, you, you, I'm not doing very well, you're actually. On like, you're on at like 50% here. Yeah. Okay, the last two. Okay, here we uh, go. Corona. Oh, shut up. Obviously quite <laughs> topical. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. Let, uh, let me think this through. It'd be in poor taste if it if it has come up, like, in the past two years, like, if someone's named it <laughs> yeah. after that. Yeah. So it'd have to be... And also, I think it'd be in poor taste for you to name it Corona. Like, if you were to make up a name and then call it Corona. So I'm going to say it's a real satellite because it would be a bit mean of you to call it that. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not mean. No. And uh, yeah, you're, you're correct. Yes. Uh, so the Corona satellite was a strategic James Bond-style military satellite in the 1960s that spied on the Soviet Union. Oh, okay. Yeah, so pretty interesting. That is interesting. Um, okay, and for the last one, we have Galaxy Ripple. <laughs> and that's a chocolate bar. <laughs> that is definitely a chocolate bar, isn't it? But, like, it might be a satellite as well, but, but Galaxy Ripple is a chocolate bar. But it, well, Wait, yeah. which means you definitely named it this. Unless you're trying... I don't know now. 
<laughs> I'm going to go, it's not a satellite. You've made it up. And the reason you've made it up is because of a chocolate bar galaxy ripple. You are correct. Yes. <laughs> and I know how much you like chocolate bars yes. and confectionery. So nice. I added that one in for you. Thank you. Thank you. Well done. You kind of redeemed yourself at the end there. You got five out, five out of eight. Five out of eight. That's not bad. Yeah, it's a, it's a good okay. place to start. You can, yeah. you can build on it for the rest of the rest of the season. I hope so. Yeah. Did you enjoy the quiz? Uh, it was very good. Uh, do you, did you come up across any other names that in your in your research? Like your favourite name? Uh, I think the the ones I chosen were the ones that I thought were the most okay. uh, interesting. There were a lot of a lot of strong ones, but they were quite obviously uh, satellite names. Sure, I liked the more <laughs> silly ones. Sure, oh, I uh, can't wait for the Joe satellite, like the the joint oceanic enterprise enterprise there we go yeah i should have done that yeah that would have been good yeah i'll remember that for next time (laughs) (laughs) okay well let's speak to someone who knows what she's talking about in this subject and let's hear from kira um so with so much talk of space exploration and travel is it fair to say we're entering a new space age You know, I think that's a really interesting way to think about what's happening. Um, I think it's really exciting to see all these new human space flight things that are going on, um, you know, space tourism. But when we look at what's actually happening, I mean, those flights are so expensive. They're costing, like, I think the cheapest one is Virgin Galactic at half a million pounds per ticket. Um, And I don't know about you, but I don't have that kind of money. (laughs) So I guess I'm questioning, like, we've had about 600 people, more than 500 people have already gone into space as astronauts. So is there more than 600 people with that kind of money to splash around? Is it actually going to be any more accessible to people than it has been in the past? Um, And I, I mean, maybe that's coming. We've definitely reached a point in time where, you know, sending spacecraft into space, launching rockets, uh, accessing satellite data, that is a lot more accessible to people nowadays. So maybe, you know, it'll come, but I'm not sure that we're quite there yet. And so are they, the people on Virgin, Virgin Atlantic, are they going into space? Is it like a class of, like a, a legal requirement like I have to go a certain height before y- space? Yeah, so, so the definition of space is actually kind of a weird one. Um, we don't, 100% agree on exactly where that okay. line is. Most people kind of say 100 kilometers up is, is considered kind of the edge of space. But actually, for, for a satellite to orbit and, and really properly stay in space, you kind of need to be 300, 400 kilometers altitude up or above. Um, but certainly where, you know, where they're going in their sort of uh, parabolic flights, you will still get that view of okay. the Earth, you know, be able to see the curvature, see the atmosphere and get that full view, view of the Earth from space. Do we think that's kind of the the main reason people are going up there for that amazing view that you'd never have otherwise? I mean, I think, yeah, certainly for the people paying for the tickets, sure. you know, you're going for the experience, aren't you? Um, but I think in terms of the people who are designing these missions, I, I'd like to think there's greater ambitions. So, I mean, um, obviously, longer term, we've heard about people like Elon Musk talking about you know, sending people out to Mars. You know, what is the future of humanity? Um, and you've got to start somewhere, right? So I think that there is a grander ambition. But even in the short term, there's been talk about... Um, you know, using these these flights, these opportunities to do experiments. So a lot of what we do on the International Space Station with, with current astronauts is that they're running particularly medical experiments. Um, the human body and even cells and plants and, and animals behave very differently in space than they do on Earth. And so 
it's running those experiments in that environment. Um, and if this is a way that we can do more of that and, you know, we can expand that body of research. Um, we've already done amazing things with like improving cures for asthma, uh, treatment of heart conditions, all these kind of things. So if that can be improved through these flights, then people can have the great views and also do some really good stuff for the world. Sure, I guess it's a good way of getting more funding for the the science that needs to go on by getting rich people to pay for a nice trip. Absolutely. I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head that one of the best things I think that's coming out of this is all the technology that's been developed to enable this. I mean, putting people into space is really, really hard. And so we've had to make sure that the rockets are you know, incredibly reliable. Um, and all of this new technology is being funded by private companies and by investors. And if it hadn't been for that, I think a lot of this would have been you know, a much longer journey to get here. When we look at like the reusable rockets, the fact that they can land, that's great financially but it's also great for the environment and i think it would have taken us a long time to get there if we were relying on things like nasa and the european space agency uh, that sounds incredible that they're able to do these kinds of experiments there and it sounds very worthwhile do you think things like colonization is that something that could happen or is it a bit of a pipe dream i mean i think uh, it's hard to separate your own, you know, your own excitement from from what's real, isn't it? Because I think certainly growing up, I always thought I would love to be able to help get the first person to Mars because I think that would be really, really exciting. I think it's something we might see. Um, you know, there's a lot of people working, uh, you know, even at University of Manchester, looking at how we can mine materials from the moon. Obviously, that can then be applied on Mars um, and looking at how we can use the resources that are there to actually live. So there is real work being done on this. I still think it's going to be a long way off. Um, having said that, I'm sure people 10 years ago thought that a lot of stuff that's happening today, like reusable rockets, wouldn't be happening in 10 years. So, you know, maybe I'll be proven wrong, but I don't think we're going to see it anytime soon. Sure. And I guess going back to the, the experiments they're doing in space, is that because we don't really have a substitute for that on Earth. We can't create that conditions to be able to test that stuff. Yeah, exactly. So it's a lot of the time it's about isolating something away from all the different forces that we're experiencing on Earth. So if you want to see how somebody's lungs work, for example, um, obviously on Earth, gravity is playing a role in the way that your lungs will expand and contract. Um, and that's true for a lot of things that happen with cells and, and so on. Um, we have experiments on Earth. There's things called drop towers. This sounds really basic, but literally we take things up to the top of a very high building and drop them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, obviously it's in free fall for that portion of time. But unless you're going to build a really tall tower, you only get a couple mm -hmm. of seconds. Um, we do parabolic flights, which is a plane that kind of sort of drops out of the sky in a very particular shape that gives you that you might have seen it you know yeah. i think there was a music video wasn't there where there was people floating around in a plane at one stage um so there are other options but to get that sort of long term um sort of away from all those influences this is the best way to do it do we know what the so the kind of billionaire astronauts that are heading up into space which are i guess kind of making this happen do we know what they're trying to achieve yeah, I, I mean, I think that's there's a lot of speculation around that. You know, is it just that they want to make money out of these joy rides? Um, is it that they're they're going to run these kind of experiments? Is it that there's a longer term vision to go to Mars? Um, and I think it's probably a combination of all of those factors. But I suspect there's also probably a little bit of just excitement about sure. wanting to be the first person to do all of these things because, um, let's be honest, who wouldn't who wouldn't want to be able to say they were the first person to to send a tourist into space, for example? So I think there's a a lot of just that child inside of us who's just really excited about space. 
And so obviously we've, we've been going to space for, what, 70-ish years now? Uh, and at least to me, it seemed as if there was like, we went to the moon, that was great. And then there was a massive gap between kind of people really going to space beyond the International Space Station. And now there seems to be this revival of people going to space. Do you, do you have a, a, a guess as to why that might be? I mean, I think part of why we stopped, or at least why things sort of seemed to take that stop, was that it's really hard to send people into space. Um, you know, it's not the safest thing to be doing. We need to put a lot of support in place to make sure that those people are safe. And particularly with the moon wish missions, we brought back an awful lot of, you know, um, moon rocks and, and various data from there. I mean, people are still examining that to this day. So there was a lot of stuff that had been brought back. And I think there was a question of, okay, well, where do we go from here? Um, and why it's been revived now, I think, I think really what we're seeing is Something that's happened over the past you know, decade or so is that access to space has become so much easier. Um, and this is just, I guess, the turning point where that access has gone from access for spacecraft to access for humans. I mean, to give you an idea, um, you know, a lot of spacecraft that we used to build would be on the order of the size of buses. You know, they were huge. They were like a ton. Now most of the spacecraft that we're sending up into space are kind of the size of shoeboxes. Uh, we use these little satellites called CubeSats um, and we can launch lots of them really, really cheaply. And that's something we just we just couldn't have dreamt of, you know, 70 years ago of being able to do this. Um, and so with that, with more people wanting to launch these cheap little satellites, more people are building rockets, um, you know, and they, and they can afford to do that because the customers are there, which means rockets are getting cheaper. And so all of this has kind of snowballed until we've reached a point now uh, where we can also do it for humans, which is, which is exciting. Sure. I get, what are those shoebox-sized satellites doing? Why are we setting them up? We are using them for a whole range of different things. So um, actually, the first spacecraft that I ever worked on was a CubeSat. It was called U-Cube-1, um, and that was Scotland's first spacecraft. So that was a really exciting cool. project to be involved in. <laughs> Um, I, I think it's the highlight of my career because my name is engraved on the side of it. Oh, wow. um, not just me, everyone involved. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a really nice, a really nice tribute to know that something you know is is in orbit yeah. with my name on the side. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, that was that was something that was built by a company called Clyde Space up in Glasgow. They specialize in these kind of spacecraft. Um, but across the UK, we're really good at small spacecraft. I think what's interesting is that people think space is really far away. Mm. You know, like you're saying, what are they doing up there? You know, are we hunting for aliens? Are we looking <laughs> at planets? What's happening? But actually, spacecraft um, are used in, in pretty much all of our daily lives. A lot of people will know about, um, you know, location surfaces, services. So being able to uh, navigate in your car, the mapping software will use satellites. Um, people might know about uh, finance services. So if you want to transfer money, um, we use satellites to secure that and time the transaction so that we know that the money's going exactly where it should be and it ends up in the bank account it should. Um, but some of the things I think are a little bit more sort of left field that people don't think about. So um, we're able to use some of these, you know, smaller spacecraft, not, not maybe, you know, shoebox size, but still small, 50, 100 kilograms, um, to provide communication services to people in remote areas. Mm -hmm. So there's uh, organizations now who are using satellites to um, enable doctors 
to communicate with patients on uh, Scottish islands, for example, who can't easily get to a hospital. And they can actually um, take a pill that has a camera in it that will do a scan as it moves oh, wow. through their system, project wow. it through the satellite straight back to the doctor, and they can get that real-time feedback as to what's going on in doing diagnosis. Um, you know, one of, one of the projects that I've worked on that I think is just amazing is we've been working with a lifeboat service in the UK uh, to help them map the area that they work in. Essentially, because the, the way the tides move, the sand shifts around over time. Um, and when they head out in their lifeboat, there's a danger that they'll run into a sandbank because it's moved from where it was a week ago. Um, and we've been using satellite data to try and give them up-to-date maps so that every time they get called out on a rescue, they can literally take out a laminated satellite image and see exactly where they're going. Um, so, yeah, th there's lots of amazing things that we do with satellites um, that people just don't know about. At the risk of sounding a bit silly, when you mention these smaller satellites, how do we send those up? Because in, in my head, when I think about something going into space, I imagine a big rocket, uh, you know, a huge process. Is it, is it like that? Yeah, I mean, still rockets are, are big. There's not really any getting away from that. And, and certainly when we've started launching these smaller satellites, we have to use the rockets that mm. we have. So. What we did was we used something called piggybacking, um, which is precisely what it sounds like, is that there's a big mission, uh, something like, for example, the James Webb telescope we just saw go up, or maybe um, a TV satellite, for example, um, but they might not take up all the space on the rocket. And so we just sort of fit in a couple of these smaller spacecraft wherever we can wedge them in on the rocket, um, and they head off uh, and they get dropped off. The downside of that is, of course, that then you get dropped off wherever they happen sure. to choose to drop you off. Mm. Um, it's a bit like doing Uber pool. You might, you know, you'll get, <laughs> you'll get somewhere, but it might not be exactly where you wanted to be. Um, so that's the downside. But what we're seeing now is that because these small satellites are becoming so popular, companies are looking at building smaller launch vehicles dedicated to these. So there's actually uh, companies in the UK looking um, at doing this. A company called Skyrora in Edinburgh have been doing some amazing work on this. Um, and again, very green, very focused on trying to be sustainable um, and looking at launching these kinds of smaller rockets from the UK. So there's lots of different launch sites uh, being proposed, being developed around the UK. And uh, I'm hopeful that we might see the first launch of a small satellite from the UK in the next year, which would be incredible. Yeah. And um, is it? Is this like a costly endeavor? Is it hundreds of thousands or is it more than that? Yeah, so it's kind of hard to say. Obviously, development and, and if you're developing, you know, a bespoke mission to do a specific task, that's going to take mm -hmm. time and that's going to be expensive. But what we've seen happening is that there's companies now, um, so companies like Surrey Satellites, who are based in Surrey, as the name would suggest, um, and uh, Spire, who are headquartered in Glasgow, they almost have like a manufacturing chain for spacecraft. Um, I've been into the Spire headquarters and you can see the facilities they have where they basically, you know, build these satellites and move them along almost like the standard manufacturing process that we'd be used to. And in doing that, they can do it so much more quickly and so much more cheaply. Launch is still expensive, um, but I would say, I was trying to think about this earlier, and I'm sure when I started out in the industry, you know, 10 years ago, we were talking about £100,000 per kilo to mm. launch anything into orbit, well, to launch a satellite into orbit. That was kind of the number that was being thrown around. And now, the most recent numbers I could find was on the order of like £2,000 oh, a wow. kilogram, 
which is a massive yeah. reduction in just wow. 10 years. So that's why, you know, I was saying that this is starting to become more accessible to mm -hmm. people because now, okay, I'm not sure that you or I have £2,000 lying around to just be throwing at a satellite launch. But certainly for companies, you know, who are interested in using satellite data, this isn't quite as out of reach, um, you know, as it, as it might be. And thinking about, you know, the, the, the human flights, the, the human tourism, I was kind of thinking, oh, I wonder if that dropped in price from the half a million now, um, where would we end up in 10 years if it followed the same trend we'd seen? So I drew myself a little graph earlier, and I figured that if we saw the same trend over the next 10 years, then by 2032, we could be looking at about £10,000 yeah, per person for a space tourism yeah. flight. I think the university could send us a, oh, a way. <laughs> yeah, the first podcast in space, that would be good, <laughs> yeah. actually. So yeah, so it's a little bit, you know, it's still it's still pricey. But if you were thinking about like a lot of people might save for a once in a lifetime holiday yeah. to Australia, you know, that yeah. that's not you get to see the whole of Australia. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, you can too. see the kangaroos from up there. <laughs> really squint. In this season of the buzz, we're asking our academics for their favourite things about our favourite city, which is, of course, Manchester. Kira. It's time for your Manchester quick questions. What is your favourite thing to do in Manchester? Without a doubt, my favourite thing to do is to go to the Northern Monk tap room. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I am a big lover of craft beers. Um, and actually, one of the first times I came to Manchester, I spent some time here going to a gig with my brother. Um, and his flight was late and I ended up in Northern Monk. And we, I sat there, read a book and drank lovely beers. Um, and we, we practically never left for the rest of the weekend. So it is absolutely my favourite place to go and just hang out and take people. Great answer. Um, who is your favourite Manchester-related person? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a tough question, isn't it? Especially when I've not been here that long. Um, and you're probably going to call me out on these things now and say, oh, are they Manchester-related? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the suffragette movement was big in Manchester, wasn't it? Yeah. Emmeline Pankhurst and that whole thing. I actually did a, a free Manchester walking tour, um, and I'm sure there's a statue. There is, there, um, yeah. And, and yeah, it's just incredible. I think one of the things I love about Manchester is that sort of northern vibe. People are really friendly, um, but also, you know, there's that feeling of it being a place for the people um, and, and so many great movements like that have started here. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, and what is your favorite Manchester building? My favorite Manchester building? Oh, that's a tough one. Probably, probably, and this is really bad to say, but probably the Sackville Street building. I think it's beautiful. Oh, really? okay. Yeah. yeah. Are, you, are you, do you disagree? I really like <laughs> it. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm not a fan, personally. I mean, admittedly, I've only been in it once or twice, but from the outside, <laughs> I think yeah. it's beautiful from it is the a outside. Um, so we know where your favourite place to drink is in Manchester. <laughs> How about your favourite place to eat? Uh, favourite place to eat. So I am very partial to uh, Northern Soul grilled cheese. Mm -hmm. I think yeah. they do amazing, amazing grilled cheese sandwiches and their pickles are hard to die for. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and just to finish off, can you describe Manchester in three words? Can I describe Manchester in three words? Hmm, that's a real tough, a tough one. one. I can think of I can think of two, and then I feel like I need to go for the alliteration, so I'm struggling there. Okay. But uh, I was gonna say friendly is the first one, mm -hmm. fun, okay. um, yeah. because it absolutely. Oh, I know what the third one is. It's got to be flamboyant, right? If you've ever been down <laughs> Canal Street of an evening, Perfect. it's got to be flamboyant, friendly, fun, flamboyant. That's it. <laughs> That's really, thank you.
Um, in terms of uh, sustainability, could they could companies almost reuse satellites that are already there and kind of repurpose them, or is that kind of you have to have that already built into the satellite beforehand? You know, it almost sounds like I prepped you for this question oh, okay. because this is buying on my research sure, area, okay. but I swear I didn't. No, you, can, you can you can testify, right? I didn't prep sure. you. <laughs> um, yeah, no, absolutely. The the way that we design space missions at the moment is normally that that a company an organization comes in and says we want to do this particular thing um, and they will design a mission that will do that but there are so many spacecraft up there already so we have around 3,000 active spacecraft currently in wow. orbit around the earth um, all doing different things so some of them are imaging some of them are communications um, you know some of them are quite old so th there's a lot of variation there um, but a lot of the work that I'm doing is trying to look at okay well what do we already have and can we actually a, make do with what we already have. Do we really need to be launching the missions all the time? And B, if we were able to share that data um, or, you know, cooperate in space, um, then maybe we wouldn't need to launch quite so many spacecraft. So instead of launching, say, 100 spacecraft to image all of the Earth, maybe we just need to launch a few to image the areas that are you know, are, we're missing at the moment for, for whatever reason. So, um, yeah, there's a lot out there. What is still possible, though, even though um, it, a lot of these spacecraft haven't been designed to, for example, communicate with each other, a lot of the data that's out there is actually publicly available. So uh, NASA and the European Space Agency have um, satellites collecting images of the Earth all the time, and it's freely available on the internet. Uh, there's an amazing website called Sentinel Hub, H-U-B, um, and you can go on and just look at data that's being collected every day by the European Space Agency. Um, you can zoom in on, on where you live and, and oh, picture wow. all these things in different colors and different types of data, um, assuming you can find a not cloudy image, which sure. in the UK sometimes is a bit tricky. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fascinating what's out there. So a, a lot of that is available for people to use. And there's lots of companies making use of that now to, to do things in their businesses that just wouldn't have been possible in the past. With there being so many craft up there, um, kind of what happens when they've ran their course, done their job? It's, I've heard the phrase space junk quite a lot. Is that a, an accurate description? Yeah, unfortunately, there is a bit of a problem with that. So I said, I was careful how I worded it. So I said 3,000 active spacecraft, sure. you know, up there doing their jobs. There are a lot more mm -hmm. up there that are, you know, that have stopped working for whatever reason. Um, there's also things like leftover bits from rockets. We're a lot better about that now. We don't we don't leave as much behind, but certainly in the old days, bits of rockets would just get chucked off into space. Um, you know, I've heard stories of things falling, you know, out of people's hands on spacewalks and there's hammers flying around and all sorts wow. of things. So I'm not sure how much of that is true, but there is a lot of things up there flying about. Um, and yes, it is, a, it is a big concern. The reason it's a big concern is that uh, we've had collisions between spacecraft before um, where we've seen you know, a dead spacecraft, which no one can control, crashing into an active spacecraft and just wiping it out. And not only that, but now we've got shards of little, little shards of spacecraft now in orbit as well, which obviously increases the risk that they mm -hmm. might hit something else. Um, and as I mentioned, like, this isn't just about, you know, joyrides or doing fun experiments. You know, we really rely on space for our everyday lives. So wiping out spacecraft is not is not good for anyone. Um, in the UK, 
we actually have a lot of companies looking at how we can start to clean up this space debris. So I mentioned about my work looking at how can we prevent it building up quite so quickly. Um, at the University of Manchester, there's also researchers proposing ways that we could operate in very low altitudes. You mentioned, you know, how high do we need to mm. go? If we can go a little bit lower, um, then the atmosphere itself it is a bit denser, a bit thicker. And what that means is that when we're finished with our spacecraft, um, they'll basically naturally deorbit and burn up. The, the atmosphere essentially slows them down and they just kind of spiral down into the earth. So that's work that's going on right here at Manchester to see how can we put spacecraft into these low altitude orbits so that they're more sustainable. Um, and yeah, like I say, there's companies in the UK looking at how can we clean up what's already up there. I always find it really funny when we talk about these because they sound like such low tech solutions. We're talking about... Um, you know, spacecraft going up with nets or with harpoons. <laughs> no, <sure, no. laughs> so it's, but there is a certain amount of, you know, simple, simple is best. We want things to be reliable and not accidentally knock out another spacecraft in the process. Um, so yeah, it, it is a challenge. We, the other thing that we can do, so a lot of these spacecraft, we'll launch them to low enough altitudes that they will naturally deorbit. So, but it could take 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we do with things like uh, TV spacecraft, which are much further away from the Earth, is we actually have what's called a graveyard orbit where we move old spacecraft to where they're just kind of out of the way because it's not a very useful bit of space and we leave them there. Um, again, people are always fascinated when I tell them this. They're like, what, there's a graveyard in space? <laughs> sure. Yes, there is. Um, and, and I think it's really important that we talk about these things because... You know, I think it's important that the public know that th this is what's happening in space. And we start asking those hard questions about, you know, is this the way that we should be doing things? Are there better ways to do it? Um, and, and like I say, with it being so much easier to launch things into space, we need to be careful and find that balance of using space to give us that really important value, but also not cluttering it up. Sure. So is, is there like a, a police for this or is it just if you have enough money, you can send a rocket up there and it'd be fine? Yeah, so it's a bit of a weird one. So we do have certain treaties and space agreements, which a lot of countries have signed up to. Um, I mentioned about some spacecraft taking 20, 25 years to deorbit. That is kind of what's mandated in these treaties, is that uh, everyone should put their spacecraft somewhere or put propellant on board so that it can be taken out of orbit at a maximum of 25 years after it's finished doing its job. So that's where that 20, 25 years comes from but it's not the law um, and we've never really seen a case where somebody's tried to prosecute someone for say sure. a spacecraft crashing into another spacecraft or or anything like that um, and there's sort of we the way things are launched they're licensed from a specific country um, and different countries will have different regulations about how to license them um, the UK have a whole uh, committee now put in place uh, in the UK government. Uh, they're actually sitting within the Civil Aviation Authority, I think, at the moment, um, who are looking at how do we license these things? You know, how do we decide what's safe, what's reasonable to send into space? Um, and, and they're being really diligent looking at how do we do this and how do we act responsibly in space? But of course, the problem is, much like lots of other elements of life uh, in finance and everything else, if people don't like the rules in the UK, they could look to license from somewhere else and other places won't necessarily be as diligent. And there is also, I think, a reason, really reasonable argument 
which I've seen from particularly emerging space nations, so countries that maybe traditionally haven't had spacecraft, but are now starting to be able to access space again because of this, the, you know, these te technological developments. Um, so countries like Mexico, for example, are starting to launch a, a lot of spacecraft and talk about what their space vision is. And, you know, their kind of thinking is, well, you know, the, the Western world, uh, UK, US, have had free reign in space for so long. You know, there's so many things up there and you weren't thinking about space debris when you launched those. So why should we be held back now because of what's happened in the past? And I think that's a really fair question. So it's a really challenging international debate um, because the one thing about space, which makes it really unique, is that it is absolutely shared. There's no way not to. When you mm -hmm. send a spacecraft into orbit, it will pass over pretty much everywhere on the Earth, depending on where you put it, but there's a good chance it'll pass over everywhere on Earth. So there really can't be any borders. Um, and trying to get joint, joint agreement across the globe is obviously uh, not a straightforward sure. matter. <laughs> Um, we touched on sustainability before. Is that kind of a, a key concern for uh, launching satellites? Is the potential for that to, for satellites to really help in that fight? I guess. Yeah. So I think where a lot of people might already be aware of this is that we use satellite data a lot to monitor climate change. Um, and so uh, people might have heard of the, the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah. Um, and obviously, there's so many of those and they cover so many different aspects. But satellite data is used in the monitoring of almost all of them um, in terms of really, really obvious things. I think sometimes like we can look at the polar ice caps and see how they're melting and, and how they're changing. Um, but there's also lots of other work going on. Um, I had a colleague at the University of Strathclyde who was looking at how we could use satellite imagery taken at night. And so you could see the lights of a city, for example, at night and how they could use that light intensity to actually correlate to poverty. So the idea being in certain parts of, of Africa, in particular, where she was looking, if there was less light, it was likely that, that there was more poverty. And so using that to actually measure how poverty is changing in a region. So really interesting ways of monitoring, are we actually meeting these targets? Are we moving in the right direction? Um, but beyond that, there actually are ways that satellites are actually helping us meet those targets as well. So like you said, um, there's some really obvious ones, you know, about looking at um, identifying areas of the atmosphere, for example, where we might have really high density of CO2 and therefore recommending that people in that region need to um, reduce uh, their emissions, for example. Um, but also I talked about the telemedicine, this idea of linking up doctors and patients. We can do it with schools as well. So particularly looking at the sustainable development goal around educating women, you know, and empowering women, we can try and provide education to remote areas, um, particularly for girls who, for example, might not be able to travel to get to schools. Um, and that's something that can be enabled by satellites. So we're, we're at that point where we're moving from being able to just monitor things to actually being able to feed that satellite information in and actually use it to, to really make a difference, which is really exciting. And I think what I'm excited to see is how that's going to change over the next couple of years as more companies and more organizations become comfortable using that data that's out there. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more exciting ideas about how this can be done. So this is quite a broad question, but um, so what are you most excited for about the future of space? Yeah, that is a that is a big, <laughs> big question, one. a big question. I think there's so much, but I I think 
particularly what's exciting to me, and, and I know I keep coming back to it, but it's this idea of how access to space and access to space data is becoming so much more available. Um, I actually gave a TEDx talk a while ago where I talked about, you know, would it be possible in the future for, uh, you know, a family, a community, a school to have their very own spacecraft? And I think I was a little bit optimistic maybe in the timelines for when I thought, you know, could this happen? But in principle, we are getting to that point. I mean, the University of Manchester have their very own spacecraft. Um, it's SOAR, uh, is, is what it's called. And the reason that spacecraft is up in orbit is to test the theories that the researchers and the academics have here at the University of Manchester and test them in space. And it's incredible to think that that's something that a university can do to test something that just wouldn't otherwise be possible. Um, and that's where we're moving towards. And to me, what's so exciting about that is that I think we're going to see new ideas coming from all sorts of different people, from people with diverse backgrounds, you know, not necessarily engineers and scientists, um, but even, you know, artists, uh, you know, children who, you know, have big dreams and can be really creative and imaginative. Um, and to me, that's going to be really exciting is to see when we open space up to the world, um, what do people come up with and, and what is next? I would love to to see it being you know, the case that everybody can access satellite data as easily now as we use Google um, and that we can use it in school projects, we can use it in work. Um, and I think once that happens, um, we'll achieve things that, that I couldn't even dream of. A big thanks to Kira for her fascinating insight on such a stellar subject. And talking of big subjects, listen out for our next episode where we're asking Professor Phil Manning what killed the dinosaurs. Find out more about The Buzz podcast at manchester.ac.uk forward slash The Buzz. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at UOMSciEng and you can also search for our YouTube and Facebook accounts. If you have any questions about today's episode, our email address is fscmarketing at manchester.ac.uk. Bye for now.